Mama, I got bad news, bad news. I've been rolling with some bad dudes, bad dudes. I've been trying to get a bag to, a bag to. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Ashes to Awesome podcast, Rising in Recovery. Our podcast provides light, hope, and understanding about addiction and mental health to those living within that life and the people who love them. Today's episode is brought to you by Revolution Recovery, helping men recover and become their best selves through support and treatment. They've been there and they understand. Hello, everybody, watchers, listeners, supporters of all kinds. Welcome to another episode of the Weekend Ramble on the Ashes to Awesome podcast. I'm your host, Chuck LaFlange, and with me in virtual studio are my two lovely co-hosts. How are you doing today, Attica? I'm great. I have my uppers. How about you? <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. And Dr. Lisa, how are we doing today in Calgary? I am doing great. It's um, it's beautiful and sunny, um, and it's mid-November, so I'm, ah. I'm good. Nice, nice, nice. We said when I see when I was young in Calgary, we had a po- totally politically, I'm sure, incorrect term for that. We called it an Indian summer. Yeah, I right? remember that. Yeah, that right? Term, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I don't think they say it anymore because it wouldn't be politically correct. But mm-hmm. you know, quite often I'm not anyway. So maybe I'll keep saying it. Well, I don't have to. I'm in Thailand. It's always summer here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and with us is a special guest, somebody I've been waiting months to have on the show, um, Dr. Angie Hamilton from. Far Canada, um, that's Families Against Addiction Recovery, or against family, Families for Addiction Recovery, <laughs> not against, <laughs> waiting months to screw up the intro, that's what I've been doing apparently, right, so anyway, <laughs> and um, she is in California right now, how are you doing today, Angie? Great, I do, just have to clarify, I'm not in fact a doctor, I'm a retired lawyer. How come yeah. I thought you were, this whole time I thought you were a doctor? Okay. I don't know. So don't months know. to screw up the, the intro just completely, right? Oh, my no, Lord. Okay. Okay. My name is, in fact, Angie Hamilton, and I am with Families for Addiction Recovery. Or okay, FAR. Okay. So it's easier to say FAR. FAR. It really is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. My apologies. Okay. No worries. Yes. I, you know, I, I like lawyers. Not as much as doctors. <laughs> I'm, I'm retired. I'm retired. <laughs> Hey, with my past, I've been a pretty big fan of lawyers. Like, who am I kidding? Right? No. <laughs> and more so than doctors, even because of my history. Right? No, no I get. Um, you know what? I want to jump right into this. And well, actually, no. First, first, let's talk about what FAR is. If you, okay. um, if you want to give so, us a picture, yeah. So yeah, sure. FAR is a Canadian registered charity that uh, came to be in 2016, and it. I'm a co-founder, and it was uh, founded by parents who had children who struggled with addiction from an early age, like early teens. And it was formed because the needs of our families aren't being met. Um, okay. And we're active really in three areas. We educate about, you know, substance use disorders in general. They aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, we advocate for the changes that we would like to see happen. And I would say just really briefly, our number one thing is compassionate evidence-based treatment on demand. Uh, the other things we think we need are, you know, protective health laws and protective drug policies. We can get into that later. And the part that uh, that we do that I enjoy the most is we provide free support services to families and family caregivers of those who are struggling with addiction. We have three services. The most popular is our P2P, or it's a peer-to-peer 
support where people get uh, one uh, uh, hour sessions for like eight weeks in a row with uh, a volunteer who is uh, matched as much as possible to the, what, you know, what their circumstances are. Uh, we also have a, a free support line Monday to Friday, certain hours, and we have family, free family group supports and all of our peers have been trained in something called the motivation to change approach uh, from the foundation for motivation and change in new york um, it's uh, basically a non-confrontational compassionate model based on craft and motivational interviewing and act except you know which is acceptance and commitment therapy wow so there's a few elements there that i i didn't realize i'm i'm, I'm more happy to have you on now than i was before before you came on so um, that's, Good. that's a lot. That's a lot that you're doing. Um, Do there's a lot to speak to there, right? Jeez. Yep. Um, and of course for us, Angie, and we've been talking now for, for a few months. One of the big focuses of our show is on the families. Um, mm -hmm. like there's a huge focus of our show is on the families, even more so sometimes in the people who are suffering. Um, because I believe your stereotypical person with SUD isn't tuning into a podcast. But the families are, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel that if we can help the families to understand and to cope, by extension, we're helping those people that are suffering in addiction, right? You know, well, well in fact, yeah, yeah. the research is pretty clear that if you support the families, it improves outcomes. Right. People with right. SUD. So, yeah. 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 Hmm. So, so linking people up. Um, well, actually, somebody that I put you in touch with some time ago, um, uh, Tammy. What's your yes. last name? Somebody help me, Tammy. Uh, Preston, Preston, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. She actually still contributes a blog to the website. Great. Uh, and some powerful, yeah. powerful words come from her. Yeah. And, and you know, and she's she still does have a kid, an adult kid who's yeah. still in it, in a, in a really you know big way. So yeah. can I ask, um, Angie? Can I ask you a question? So, mm -hmm. um, like early days for my family needing support would have been back around two thousand two, two thousand three. Um. And you know what we were encouraged to do was to go to Al-Anon. Right. Um, I've I've spoken about my personal experience with that, um, being that I went to a meeting while my brother was two stores two floors up in detox, and my phone rang, and everybody looked, and said like, "If it's him, don't answer, don't answer." And I left and never went back. Um, but I'm curious, you know, because obviously Al-Anon was around before FAR. And there's the advocacy um, role that FAR is playing or is trying to play. But in terms of the peer support, family support, did you feel that there was just more need than Al-Anon could provide or does FAR specifically approach it differently than Al-Anon or like that's what was great, the thought around that? That's a, that's a great question. I haven't thought about this in years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like if Al-Anon, uh, if we thought Al-Anon Al did everything, then we probably wouldn't be doing the peer support, right? Um, so uh, that said, I went to Al-Anon for years and um, I actually found a group uh, when we were in California that helped more than others because it was specifically for parents. And 
the other ones were more for spouses and and that makes a big difference uh it's you know a huge mm-hmm. difference dynamic yeah it makes there, a right? huge yeah. difference like you're yeah. you're not walking away from your kids so um but but i would say the the uh, and and i firmly believe in the three c's you know you didn't cause it you can't control it and you can't cure it uh, i think that's sort of like gold um uh and so i think there's a lot of good in al-anon um but it depends on the group that you go to and and there are limitations and for me personally like uh after you know well a couple things one i don't have a lot of time and it reminded me of church i'm i'm a recovering catholic and uh so you know how like certain things are always the same so they would read the 10 steps and the you know the 12 steps oh my god the 12 steps and uh you know there was like parts that were just sort of like the same every week and then there'd be like the good part which is like the homily in church you know where they it's different from, from the last week and then people could make comments but there was no what they call crosstalk so you know you right. couldn't yeah. like give advice to someone or and you know like advice like you know i found this worked for me or this didn't work for me or you might want to think about right like not telling a person what to do and you know we're not an expert but this this is our experience sharing your your lived experience to address a point that someone raised and i was looking for crosstalk i i wanted the crosstalk mm-hmm. i wanted to know what you know other people thought and what worked for them and what didn't work for them and all of that and so there was that initially, but then what happened really is I read the book Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Helps People Change, which was by the Center for Motivation and Change in the States. And it was just like an eye opener. There were a couple concepts there that I really hadn't heard before that won't be a surprise to any of you. But for example, like ambivalence, you know, like. Um, yeah. Explain what you mean when you say ambivalence in, in this context. Yeah. So. Um, it's hard for families when we can see the harms that substances are causing our loved ones and they don't see seem to see those harms, right? And then what happens is there's fear and that often gets expressed as anger. Um, now for a quick public service announcement. One of the best ways to reduce stigma is with education. If you still have questions that we haven't answered on today's show, you can learn more about Together We Can's education group at twcrecoverylife.org. Hey everyone, this is Ryan Bathgate from Kaleidoscope Wednesdays. I wanted to bring a public service announcement to you today about Narcan, or also known as Naloxone. These kits uh, have saved so many lives over the years. Uh, I can attest for that. Uh, Being in the industry for so long, I can tell you since we've had the opioid crisis declared in 2016, it has saved thousands of lives, and I've watched it personally save hundreds of lives. These kits are small, easy to use. Uh, you can keep them in your glove box or uh, or in a cupboard in your home, and you never know when somebody's going to need them. Uh, if you have a hard time finding a Narcan kit in your area, just email us here at Ashes to Awesome Podcast at gmail.com. Throw Narcan in the subject line. Tell us where you are, and we'll do the legwork to find that for you. If you wanted to send me a question for my Kaleidoscope Wednesdays, again, email ashes to awesome podcast at gmail.com. We will read that question on air and I'll do my best to answer it in a comprehensive way. 
Uh, that's all I have for now, and I will go back to the show. Thanks for listening. So, uh, ambivalence is like there. It really helps to understand what they what they teach you is um, behaviors make sense, right? So families look at this and they go, "This is crazy. You're killing yourself. Can't you see that? That's this, this behavior does not make sense." But in fact. Uh, if you look at it from your loved one's perspective, it absolutely makes sense, especially in the beginning, right? Because in the beginning, there there can be a lot of benefits to substances. Uh, you know, you can numb out, uh, you, you know, it, it makes you more relaxed. Uh, it, it can feel better in terms of depression, anxiety. There's, there's uh, a lot that the drugs initially in any event can do for you. And for people who don't develop a problem, that just continues. Um, but for people with a problem, it doesn't just continue. So it you can't relate to your loved one if you can't really put yourself in their shoes. Like, why are they doing this? What are they getting out of it? Ask the question, don't assume anything. Like, oh my God, the assumptions. Assumptions will kill you. Like. And I can I can hear my son say, you know, when you assume you make an ass out of you and me, because like, right, like, and uh, it's so true. Um, So the concept of ambivalence, that people use drugs for a reason, that they're not, in fact, you know, um, that, you know, acting irrationally, you know, uh, is very helpful, very helpful to families to understand that. I've never even, I, I've tried to word it a thousand different ways, Ange, and even without like breaking it down and, and really helping them understand why, just that whole concept, the way you've worded it now is like, okay, I have a different way to speak to this when, when I get to so many messages that I do these days from, from loved ones, right? So that, that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I kind of cut ties, you, go ahead. Yeah, go it ahead. ties in a lot, right, with what... I mean, I think with what we talk about on the show, and Angie, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to watch any of the Wednesday episodes. So on Wednesdays, every week on this podcast, um, we have Ryan Bathgate come on, and he's a therapist. He does a lot of, you know, non-substance using therapy, but then he also does work at a recovery center working with people. Um, And he always talks about that, that, you know, explore the why, right? For the majority of people, there's mental illness, there's trauma, um, there's something that is driving that early use, right? right? It's not random, you know? To understand, not to be understood. Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's the moment you do that, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that kind of speaks to what you're saying right now, Ange, right? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Um, And I kind of cut you off there. You had gone off and you were were talking about two different things and I stopped you at ambivalence and then, you know, you said uh, well, I, I, well, why we created FAR and, and AA, and, and so we're big yeah. on advocacy, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, nothing's going to change, and everything needs to change. And if families <laughs> are quiet, and people who are struggling or people in recovery are quiet, our people are just going to continue to die. So, um, yeah, that, that anonymity, like... Um, you know, for me, like, uh, I don't care who knows that I have a loved one who struggles with addiction. Like, I have yeah. something to say. <laughs> I'm going to keep right, saying right. it until somebody yeah. hears the message who who can do something about it and is willing to do something about it. That's mm-hmm. a curious thing. Just recently, really, it's that second A that has been bothering me in the 12 steps. 
right? And it's funny that you just that you, you chose the word anonymity. Um, where it's kind of hit me is, especially south of the border in the United States, there's kind of this push about, well, if you're a member, you're not supposed to speak to it because it's Alcoholics Anonymous. And okay, but yeah, you are supposed to speak to it because that's we share the message. That's what we do, right? And, and I say we, I'm not a 12-stepper. Um, that second A is to protect the privacy of those around you mm-hmm. who wish to have their privacy, not to protect yourself. Right? right. If I choose to, if I choose to recover out loud, and I choose to shout it from the rooftops, and I choose, right. and I choose to tell everybody that I'm a twelve stepper, that's how you get the message out, and that's how you help people. So shut up. Yeah. It. It's kind of my yeah. attitude. Right? Yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, so and it's been a kind of a frustrating thing for me lately. Go ahead, Lisa. Sorry to cut you off. Um, I find it interesting, Angie, like in the work I do, how families don't realize or appreciate the power that they have. That's my experience. Like even, you know, Chuck, without naming names, obviously, but, you know, there's been two different occasions in the past, what, few months where, you know, Chuck has known somebody personally in Calgary who needed help. And a lot of the advice has centered around what the families can do to advocate, to demand, to push, to Mm -hmm. expect more. And I find, and it's interesting because I don't know if it's entirely stigma that, that does it, if it's shame, um, but Apathy, I feel like fa- at some point, right? Maybe, you know? yeah. You know, I don't yeah. think in in the cases, you know, in the specific specific cases we've talked about recently. But yeah, probably at some point people give up or they think there's no hope or whatever it is. But I'm like, you know, scream from the hilltops, you know, because <laughs> I think the more noise you make, and you shouldn't have to. But I think sometimes you do. And I think that if you demand and you advocate and you scream, you know, you can get more support. Um, But a lot of times families don't. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm talking specifically from a hospital perspective, I guess, you know. Yeah, Um, so I'll I'll give that some context if you don't mind, Lisa. So um, most recently right now is a case we're focusing on. And I've said her first name online now, Heather, so I I can say that now. Obviously, I respect her, her anonymity. But, um, Heather's family and I have been close for a better part of 30 years. They found her in a car and, and, and um, unresponsive, soiled herself, um, just in really bad shape, you know, cold blue-green or blue-gray color. Heather's rushed off to the Sheldon Schumer Center. And, and now it's this battle. Now it's, it got even more complicated, but it's this... You have to keep her there. You can't let her go. You have to keep her there. And of course, four hours after she was admitted, she was discharged because she didn't want to stay, right? After getting going there in that type of shape, if you can imagine, like what? You know, and there's a hiccup somewhere in the system that shouldn't have happened. I, well, I don't know that there was a hiccup. They told her family the next day that she hadn't been admitted there. So if you can imagine the raw panic after telling her family to go home, we got this, come back tomorrow. We'll look at how to, how to handle oh. this, you know? So her mom calls back back the next day. Well, we've never had anybody here admitted by that. What are you talking about? So mom goes into raw panic, just like, and her aunt, who's my direct contact, go into crazy panic mode, call every hospital in Calgary. No, nobody here by that name. Nobody here. Can you just imagine how that must have like, oh my. Yeah, because we deal with parents in that situation all the time. Like it's almost a stereotype that they (laughs) finally get them into the hospital and, uh, and the the parents are there saying, 
you know, please don't discharge them. And if you do discharge them, like make sure we can get here, right? So you discharge them to us. I mean, yeah. it, it's a stereotype that uh, that just never happens. It's it's a, just, well, it's like a they, stigma they based. I think we can all they, agree on that. Yeah. They they right. never they never call the family. They just I mean, some of the story I've heard, like uh, one gentleman walked home from the hospital in winter in uh, Ontario with no shoes. Eight K. Right. Lucky There's also something about shoes. Once my my son came home, which I just find it hilarious because he went in with those high top, really expensive shoes, which disappeared in the hospital. And he came home and I'm sure some 80 year olds wallabies. So there's something that happens to the shoes. It's like socks and dryers. I don't know, shoes in hospitals. They just disappear. Um, but there you go, you know? Yeah. Oh dear. So that's funny. But it, yeah. it is funny. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta get the humor where you can, because the whole situation yeah. is of course completely unacceptable. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. We've, uh, you know, we've spoken to that a few times. The bar moves after you've yeah. lived it my like my particular lived experience or your particular or your any one of us here the bar has moved now you know things that we find kind of oddly funny so maybe some other people wouldn't but mm -hmm. you know yeah if you can't yeah. laugh after all the crap yes you know, then you know it's important it, it, it helps yeah yeah it, it sure helps you, find you can see like throughout the years your humor or at least mine got darker and darker mm -hmm. and darker. Right, which is, which exactly. is a rabbit hole unto itself. And I think we have to be yeah. careful about that. Because yeah. at some yeah. point, at some point, there's something there within yourself that you have to address, right? Like, why yeah. is this, you know, I mean, but, but I know exactly what you yeah. mean, Attica. I've got some, some weird shit I find funny now compared to, you know, compared to 10 years ago, that's for sure. Right? But, you know. I think we all do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, again, your bar has been moved. Right, like once you live through a child who's almost died how many times, or could be, you know, in like who's in the throes of an opiate addiction, who could could be dead any day, right? Like you you're constantly in the back of your mind waiting for that phone call, or myself who's been through some of the most crazy experiences, and any one of these things, I, I mean, of course your bar is going to move, right? It has to. We're all, we're only human. <laughs> and I think some of the humor is also protective, right? I think it's psychologically yeah. protective. You know, mm -hmm. I remember being a first year medical student and um, I was I was doing some shadowing at the addiction center here. And I remember we were going into a weekly conference and he pulled me aside and said, like, you need to understand there's going to be inappropriate jokes. Um, and And the description he said is like, of course, this is not funny, but we have to find some humor. Otherwise, this breaks all of us, you know? Yeah. And so I think some of it yeah. is to try to, yeah, just to protect it's yourself. It's a mechanism. It, it, was, it was pointed out to me, and it's a good point, Attica, just yesterday or the day before in my therapy session with Mike here at the trauma center. Um, coping mechanism, <laughs> pretty obvious, right? <laughs> Ain't humor in the biggest way and and that's part of my internal family systems which is something like the latest thing that we've gotten into now which is crazy good therapy right um everything mm -hmm. is here though everything is right so yeah yeah seeking a path to heal from trauma discover yatra center in phuket thailand yatra specializes in emdr eye movement desensitization and reprocessing a groundbreaking therapy transforming lives globally why choose Yatra? Nestled in the tranquility of Phuket, Thailand, 
Yatra offers both online outpatient services and immersive residential programs. Their expert therapists ensure that traumatic memories are processed, becoming less intense and more manageable. Research-backed and globally recognized, Yatra's EMDR approach doesn't just ease the pain, it targets the very core, facilitating deep healing. Whether you're at home or at their serene center, Yatra paves your way from trauma to tranquility. Don't let the past overshadow your present. Choose Yatra. Transform pain into strength and step into a brighter future. Visit yatracenter.com and embark on your healing journey. Everything is right. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. Um, um, yeah. We're going to have a whole episode to talk about each, each modality by the time I'm out of here. Right. Lisa, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good. It's yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. It sure is. It sure I'm is. just looking at the comment and there is Chantel saying that it's oh, a trauma shit. response Sorry. to high pain a lot of the times for me. I think I'm like that too. I think it's like either. So you have to grieve when there's a trauma. Um, and, but in the given moment when you're facing that trauma, it's, you just cope with it with humor and then after that you grieve at least for me i grieve um so yeah um that's a good yeah, point Chantel. that's Chantel from trap house testimonies who we were talking about previous to recording here that, that's jumping oh, in with yeah. us now and saying that mm-hmm. and yeah she's Chantel. some i had to make a gif for Chantel specifically say it's my phoenix going for fuck's sake, Chantel. So it's just like for fuck's sake. <laughs> it says FFS Chantel on it. It was specifically designed for her because some of the crazy crap that comes out of her mouth. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it all comes from a great place. So she can absolutely relate to the humor. Right? Yeah. 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 Um, Chuck, I was thinking that it would be really interesting to get Angie's perspective on your um, your meme about rock bottom. Yeah, let's do that. So... Um, I'll just, and, and we did to, behind the curtain, we did speak kind of to it. And that's when we had to hit the record button. Cause I thought we were burning content. So, um, to recap for the audience, I posted a meme a few days back that said, and I'm not going to do it a direct quote cause I won't remember it exactly. But, um, if you have a loved one who's come back from addiction or overcome addiction uh, after being left at rock bottom, they did that in spite of you, not because of you. So don't let you know, um, there's, or don't take credit for their, their strength or something to that effect. Right. Or, or don't let their strength justify your choices. Maybe that's how I said it, how, something to that effect. Um, Angie, if we could get your perspective on that, you had some really cool things you were starting to say there before we had to hit record and, you know, not burn that content. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we, uh, try to encourage families to stay engaged with their loved ones as much as possible. And uh, we also try to do this without judgment of what's possible for them. Um, so like there's, there's okay. no question, okay, that uh, the outcomes for our loved ones are better when the family gets support and are engaged, right? And don't walk away. Yeah. That said, um, you know, families can also, I mean, can go both ways, but families can suffer abuse. Um, Sometimes it is physical. More often, it's sort of verbal. Sometimes it's financial, um, and you know, it's it's important to put boundaries in place to protect your own mental health. And to me, that that isn't 
um, really just for you, but it's also for your loved one. And it's saying, you know, I, I can't handle this right now and I matter as well. And it's also good for them to know that it's not okay to treat people that way, even if they are your family, right? I think all of us, yeah. I mean, it's just a sad truth. I think that all of us, well, we're more comfortable letting family members see the worst of us more than a stranger, right? Like you'll, you, yeah. Know, yeah. you could be it's at home having a bad day and everybody's going to know. And then you go out and it's all sunshine and rainbows and unicorns. And then you come back home and it's all clouds and thunder and whatever. That's kind of just normal but um it, it's it's important for families to look after their own mental health and the mental health of other people in the family not just a person with substance use disorder and to me that that is also a good thing for the person with substance use disorder because if you don't it, it's it's more likely that you're you're going to walk away if you don't have some boundaries and, and sometimes people just need to walk away for a short period of time it's not Hitting, um, you know, it's not about punishing your loved one or, you know, they have to hit rock bottom. It's about, I deserve a good life too. Absolutely. And I can't help you if I'm a mess. And right now, I can't handle the way you're treating me or this situation, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and so I need some space. And that that's a good thing. That boundaries Absolutely. like that are, are good things. It's that old cliche about put your, you know, your oxygen mask on first, right? Exactly. You can't, you're not going to be able to help that loved one if you're, you know, if you're too busy yeah. in survival mode yourself, right? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, and for me, yeah. for ahead. me, hearing yeah. you say I matter too, like just went, oh, like, I was like, whoa, <laughs> like, um, because when you love someone who's suffering, it's so easy to get lost in that. You know, and that fear, as we know, that it can equal death makes it very scary to own that you matter too. Yeah. Yeah. You oh, know what sure. I mean? Like, it's yeah. Like that, that kind of, I don't well, want to say survivor's guilt, but pre-survivor's guilt. I don't, I don't know what you would call that. I mean, you probably have a better term for that, Lisa, than I do, but I'm not. Well, yeah. parents, are, you know, parents are supposed to protect their kids. And what I can tell you, uh, you know, from what I see and as I get older is that uh, they're all always your kids. They might be 50 and you might be 90 or, or what, 80. <laughs> they're still your kids, right? <laughs> and, I'm 46 uh, years old and I'm, I'm, I'm all about mommy right now. So let me there tell you. There you go, right? <laughs> so, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 46 yeah. years old. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So, Angie, to be like, to like really put you on the spot, <laughs> do you agree with the term? hit rock bottom do you believe because there are people out there who will say you got to let them hit rock bottom you got to let them no. hit rock bottom it's like this this hard no. statement no. Yeah. especially with the opioid epidemic i mean i think everybody can see that rock bottom often is death no i don't agree with that at all i think you know yeah. uh, sometimes okay and sometimes some people lose capacity to look after themselves right I think in those circumstances, it's incumbent on us to do our best to protect them. And, you know, that's where the law comes in. And I'm great unhappiness about some of our laws. It's not just how they're drafted, but it's also how they're applied. Um, and so I, I do not agree with just, you know, letting them hit rock bottom. 
No, waiting, waiting for rock bottom is waiting for death. Yeah. That's what it is. These days, unfortunately, that is our new reality. Right? Yeah. It really is. It really is. You have to protect yourself. You have to protect your loved ones. And I would never try and take that from somebody. And I think that almost has to come first. Well, it does have to come first. If you've got other family members, you can't bring them into the chaos with you too because you're trying to, you know, that's not going to help anybody. But at the end of the day, waiting for rock bottom was waiting for death. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you know, we see, listen, Angie, I've been out of the life now for uh, almost 13 months. It'll be 13 months in a couple of days here. Congrats. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I still get phone calls routinely from people. And I've been separating myself from that life. And I still get messages and phone calls routinely about people that I've lost in, in yeah. my small circle, right? If I was still in it, I can't imagine how often that would be happening, right? You've got people now that have been using, at least in Regina, where most of my fuckery happened. Sorry for the language. Um, it's been about five years now that, that fentanyl has been like a hardcore street drug there and like really popular anyway. And now we're getting to a point where, you know, between the, the benzos and the tranks that are being added to it, you know, and, and the larger and larger doses people are taking to get high, well, eventually the dose that gets you high kills you at some point, especially with all this crap cut into it, right? So, um, that, you know, all yeah, the that, people catching up. Yeah. In, who, who eventually get into recovery or start to move towards wellness, it is so much harder for the recovery when so many of your friends are gone. Like my son has way more dead friends than I do by a long shot. I am right. more than twice his age. So, um, yeah. Isn't that how crazy, do you recover? Scary, right? Like he almost has no one left. Each one of those is a new trauma yeah. that your brain is going to, yeah. oh, look, I've got a coping strategy just for this, right? It is built right in and it, we just did it yesterday and it worked yesterday. So let's do it today, right? And each one of those, everything, every one of those is a new trauma to, to, to process. Right? Yeah. It sucks. It really it does. You know, it really yeah, does. Yeah. You know, um, that, that said, after last week's, did I tell I think I, well, I did tell you, you ladies off, offline. Last week we talked about Jess and how she had been off the radar for 48 hours. Jess is a friend of mine, Angie, in, in Regina. Before I left for Thailand, I stopped and reconnected with. And, and just I've taken a, a great personal interest in her particular story. I wish I could for every single person that I mm-hmm. left behind, if you want to say that, and who's still in active addiction and like just a hard, hard life, right? Um, as a sex worker and all that. So she disappears for 48 hours, you know, and not like messages not delivering on, on, on Messenger. And to me, that's terrifying. It happened if it's 24 hours, it's terrifying. 48 hours. Or no, she was at four days by this point. Yeah. So yeah, like 96 hours. I was, I'm losing my mind with worry, you know, and I'm hyper empathetic and I emote a lot on the show. It's not an episode if I don't cry at some point. And as soon as we stopped recording, as soon as, and I'm not a religious man, but sometimes I wonder, right? Because <laughs> as soon as we stopped recording, boom, in comes a message. That's from her. She's back with her mom and she's back. She's taking another kick at recovery, right? So. It was and something else. How did you feel? What did, how did you feel? How did I that bawled. change your di- Right. I bawled. I bawled in relief. And so if you can imagine her mom, right, who, you know, I reached yes, out I to. <laughs> yeah, of course you can. Yeah. Um, I, can I reached out to her the week previous to say, hey, you know, like, this is who I am. You don't know me. I got Jess to give me her number. 
Um, so I, cause I said, listen, I want to try and reach out to your mom so that we can offer her some support through the show and our, and our network of people that we have and, you know, maybe help bridge the connection between you two. Cause she had just had two months clean. She's about mm-hmm. a month into relapse. It's like, Oh, mm-hmm. and that, that catastrophic, that, you know, thing that are catastrophic, catastrophic, catastrophizing. Thank you. A relapse, I think, is a normal thing for loved ones to do, right? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, I'm sure you could speak to, you know, in your capacity as peer supporting and all that. But, oh, yeah. Um, so to reach out to her and, and but here's, here's the thing. Jess being a sex worker, her mom knows this about her. It's not hidden, right? Um, they're also, they're indigenous as well, I should say. It's not unheard of for Jess to have people kind of stalking her, like low-key stalking and like, like dudes, you know, like guys with, with ill intent. So her mom is like, who is this white guy messaging me about my daughter? Is this just another one of these like weirdos? Mm-hmm. What's going like, you know, so, and I yeah. didn't realize this until I talked to Jess finally. And she's like, oh yeah. She thought like, she's wondering who the hell you were. Right. <laughs> I, was like, yeah. I guess, yeah, I could see that. I can see that. Right. So yeah, it, it was it's quite funny, but yeah. Um, yeah. And she still is. Uh, we talked yesterday. Um, she's, she's back at home, still on the recovery road and I know, right. You can breathe I again. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. The following is a national question. emergency. A new study out shows there may be gross underreporting of opioid related deaths. Many of those opioid crisis overdose deaths have been caused by toxic effects on families and communities across this country. One Canadian dies approximately every 53 minutes to overdose. That's 27 deaths every day and 837 deaths each month. That makes 405% more deaths to overdose than car accidents in 2022. Are you listening now? So who does this affect? Everyone from pro athletes to celebrities to business people and kids. This crisis affects us all, with 77% of overdoses happening in people's homes. So how did we get here? These drugs were designed to ease pain, but their overuse has caused hundreds of thousands of Canadians to become addicted. Most addictions begin with prescription opiates, but later shift to unregulated substances like heroin and fentanyl due to availability and cost. This is a huge problem. The vast majority of overdose deaths are caused by a toxic street drug supply. The National Overdose Response Service is a 24-hour phone line providing anonymous support for substance users. NORS will co-create safety plans, dispatch EMS, or contact someone to administer naloxone without involving EMS. Please don't use alone. If using in the USA, please call Never Use Alone and download the Brave app. Can I ask a question? Mm, yeah, of course you good. can. Um, you were saying that one of the frustrations is not just the laws, but the the way that they're applied. Ooh, <clears throat> and yeah. I don't remember, Angie, if we've actually spoken about this, but I know I've spoken about it on the show. So I'm curious for you to talk about that more. Like mm. one of the things I, I notice is, for example, in Alberta, right? Certification under the Mental Health Act is via a Form 1. Now, in Alberta, we do not use Form 1s to certify people with substance use disorder. And I've actually been told in review panels, well, we just don't do that here. There you go. But if you go through the criteria, 
Right. They meet criteria. Right. They certainly do. So I'm curious for you to just talk about this. I have so much to say about this. So uh, (laughs) both in terms of Alberta and Ontario, and it's similar in many other provinces, right? So uh, there's a there's a really good article in 2020 in Ontario called Rethinking Involuntary Admissions for Severe Substance Use Disorder in Hospital Settings. Really catchy title, but uh, it it was written by eight uh, physicians and lawyers, right? And they looked at the criteria of our Mental Health Act in Ontario, and they you know so it's like is someone you know. Um, serious risk of and is addiction a mental disorder under the act those were the two questions okay and they looked at it and this is a commentary and they said yes and yes and it's pretty clear from from and, a number of things yeah go ahead and to interject one thing that's interesting is at least here in terms of you know a disorder we're told very clearly when we go to review panels by lawyers that i don't care what the diagnosis is so to me it almost supports using it in addiction or substance use disorder because what they're saying is is there impaired judgment is there disorganized thinking is like that is their definition of a mental illness or a mental disorder it's not a diagnosis and so it's like then why do we not utilize it in substance use disorder yeah, I like. I just feel like it's stigma driven. It is one hundred percent. No one will 100%. say that or admit oh, oh, that. Actually, this article, oh, oh, this commentary, she's... does does say it. And I thought there were a couple. There were a couple little quotes I wanted to make this morning. So thank you for setting me up for this one. So in in this, I love comment... you as a guest, Ange. Before you start, you are like you are a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for I'm, coming. I'm okay, passionate. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, that, that's that's a good way to phrase it. That passionate. So, um, it, what what this group of physicians and lawyers said is, is because they then said, so if if it meets criteria, if there's serious risk of harm, which they clearly are because they're dying, and if it is a mental disorder, which it clearly is under the DSM and even under the consent and capacity tribunal decisions, it's clear. Um, but they, they tend to only do it when there's something else going on, when there's some other mental health disorder. So why is it that we're not applying it? They said, is the possible underutilization of involuntary measures in people with severe substance use disorders or the exclusion of people with substance use disorders from everyday interpretations of involuntary admission criteria, a manifestation of therapeutic nihilism or worse? stigma which further compounds this population's marginalization so So, can you dumb that down oh yeah okay so they basically (laughs) said why aren't we applying the like if it applies right there this is a mental disorder and that serious risk of harm and they aren't seeking treatment why aren't we hanging on to them and the answer was could it be because like we just think it's uh hopeless like untreatable or is it stigma, i.e. discrimination? Like, sadly, yes. you know, the medical community in general, um, they just don't get a good education in addiction. They don't really know what it is. Uh, I'm talking about, like, not the specialists, obviously, but the, the general doctor population and maybe 
I think ER, it's getting a little better, but it, yeah, you know, it's still kind of viewed as a choice out there and um, don't get like, I think it's, unless it's an addiction psychiatrist, I don't think psychiatrists are much better and the older they are, the less informed yeah. for me, uh, they are. Um, so in other words, the problem isn't necessarily the drafting or, uh, of the Mental Health Act. It's the application of the Mental Health Act. So this was Which written... we've spoken to at great length on the show, yeah. Lisa, specifically, right? Yeah. 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 So so this was written three years ago. And what's happened in the meanwhile, well, interestingly, uh, CAMH just had a grand rounds on involuntary treatment. They discussed, discussed three cases, uh, and two of which applied our Mental Health Act to substance use you know, to uh, substance use disorder alone. And what really uh, encouraged me was actually looking at the reasons for one of them. One of them was alcohol. And um, they, uh, they looked at the fact that the person who was a mother uh, of young children, uh, you know, could face homelessness and probably would face homelessness because the family was at the point where they could no longer, she, she was, um, a risk to her young children and other family members. So they couldn't, they couldn't put a roof over her head. And that was taken into consideration. And to me, that, that's what should be taken into consideration. Because again, historically, it, it, physicians look at imminent death. That is, you know, what is serious risk of harm? It's imminent death. And to me, it's like, no, no, where, where do we want to go? We don't want people with addiction, mental illness to end up in jail dead or homeless. To me, I think basically people agree with that. Uh, so how, like, work backwards from there and how do we get there? And if you have revolving door, you know, ER visits or, you know, incarceration, it doesn't get you to where you want to be, right? Mm -hmm. So Lisa LaPointe out in BC is the chief coroner, recently said something that is really, um, I mean, it's just true, but from my perspective, from a legal perspective, it's it's uh, really telling. She said, anybody out there using illegal substances is at serious risk of harm or death. Okay, There's one criteria right there for involuntary treatment. The other one is you have a mental health, just a, mental, a mental disorder is the, the words that they use. So it's not going to catch people who are recreational users. But if you're struggling with addiction and you're addicted to illicit substances and you don't want treatment, you just met the criteria. How many people is that? That's, yeah, go ahead, Lisa. I just want to read, just as you're going, right? I actually have pulled up the Alberta <laughs> form yeah. so I can be yeah. very specific. Yeah. So for example, they define on the form that I have been told, we just don't use that for addiction in Alberta, that a mental disorder is a substantial disorder of thought, mood, perception, orientation, or memory that grossly impairs your judgment, your behavior, your capacity to recognize Check. reality, Check. Or, or, so if nothing else, or your ability to meet the ordinary demands of life. Right. Now, somebody tell me how addiction does not satisfy this criteria. Of course it does. Yeah. So, so I can help you with that, like even specifically okay. to Alberta. I'm going to send mm -hmm. you after this. 
Uh, there are two lawyers, I think they were with the law firm Miller Thompson, that uh, in the last six months or so, uh, wrote an article on human rights and substance use disorder. And they were responding to people making the criticism that the uh, intended Compassionate Care Act of Alberta would be medical violence or something along those lines, right? Like a violent reaction or whatever. And they were addressing yes. that. And I mean, their whole thing, it was uh, like, no, this isn't a violation of rights, you know, and, and two, they don't even need the, compa the Compassionate Care Act. They could be no. doing this under their existing Two lawyers exactly. in Ontario, you don't need a Compassionate Care Act. So it's kind of interesting. So why are they doing it? Yeah. Like, why are they doing it, right? Like, what are the And the reasons? other thing is that, again, I agree. I've heard that exact thing that, well, they're not imminent risk. And often it's not even like it gets um, ignored about the risk they are to themselves. And the focus is they're not going to hurt anybody. And it's like, but what about else, themselves? Anybody else. Right. Yes. Right. And again, that particular criteria does not say that they need to be at imminent physical risk to other people. It actually says is within a reasonable time, likely to cause harm to others or to suffer negative effects. <laughs> That's right. totally implied. And, and yeah. it's not, it's not just imminent death, like serious risk of harm, uh, you know, is to me, if they're going to be sexually exploited, mm -hmm. uh, if, uh, you know, um, they're going to be incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Like incarceration, yeah. let's just look at youth. Incarceration is an adverse childhood experience. Right? <laughs> so if the choice is like this kid is trafficking or this kid is stealing or this kid is pummeling people because they've got out of control addiction and the parents are going, yeah, so let's treat them so those things aren't happening because that's not the kid I know, that's not the kid I raised, that's my kid struggling with an addiction. You know, why would we say to the parents, oh, sorry, sorry, no, it's their right, it's their human, it's their autonomy, we're going to wait to, oh my God, look at all the bad things, let's shove them in jail now. That's what parents are being told, you know? Like, if we're aware that our kids are involved in truly criminal activity, which I define as harm to others, right? And we go, uh, this is happening. We need to intervene because otherwise you're just going to arrest them. And that's an adverse childhood experience. And it isn't too good for adults either. So let's get them before that happens. It's like, oh no, they have rights. They've got autonomy. We have to wait. And then we're going to criminalize them. And if it's the other side of it, if it's, it's not harm to others, but harm to self, then you just have to wait until they die. And then you get to bury the mom and dad. We'll call you, we'll call you in to make the funeral arrangements. You're kind of useless to us. Mm -hmm. until I mean, it's so, yeah. like, you know, the whole thing, they have to want treatment to me. What, what I hear is, you know, tag your it. What, when the medical community says they have to want treatment, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It means we're not helping. Yes, it's our job. Yes, we're paid to do this. Um, uh, no, you're not experts. We are. And you have a job and you have other people in the family to protect. Um, and this isn't your expertise. Uh, but even though your kid's at serious risk of harm to themselves or others, they don't want help. So it's your job now. We've mm -hmm. delegated that to you. Because wow. it's easier for us not to have to deal with people who don't want to be here. And yeah, sure it is. I, I got to uh, say, Ange, I know yeah. all of this stuff already. Yeah. And the way that you are wording things, it's pissing me off 
more again, right? Like it's reinvigorating all of this in me. You know what I mean? Like, well, good. Um, like, and yeah. And it's also and I'm, I'm always pissed off about this. Like, I don't know how you're getting more out of me. <laughs> you know, one of the things that frustrates me when I hear people talk about, you know, we're violating their rights and autonomy is the fact that in mental health, we certify people often. We impose treatment orders. We impose community treatment orders when they're discharged from the hospital. And yet somehow, again, my belief is stigma rooted, is that we don't, and I don't think this is the case, but I feel like there's this general thing put out into the universe that somehow we can't apply our same knowledge and abilities to someone with substance use disorder as what we do to people who have schizophrenia or have bipolar disorder. You know, like there's even, um, and it just like, it made me nauseated. There's a emergency physician in Calgary um, who, for whatever reason, seems to really, you know, try to promote themselves through social media. And it's, always, you know, these videos and these posts and, um, and, and posted this video of themselves sitting in their car crying oh, I saw it. about this idea of mandating treatment for substance use disorder. And I replied, I never reply. This was like on Twitter and I never like, I can't be bothered, but I'm like, are you kidding me? Like how many form ones did you complete this week at work for people with mental illness? So why are you acting like somehow this person with substance use disorder is unique and special and, and to, to do the same thing to them is so violating. Like, what are you talking about? It right. actually so, angers me. Well, oh, yeah. I'd like that, to see that fire in you, right? That it um, made, made me very angry, too. Um, I, I want to I, I get Attica involved here, ladies, if, if I can. Mm -hmm. um, Attica, and, and I don't, it's no secret. I mean, we've had this conversation. You're, I think your perspective right now is, is extra valuable because you've, your opinion has changed. It is, and correct me if I'm wrong, right? Or, you know, you've, you've had a shift at least in, in your thinking around. Um, mandated treatment yeah that... so um basically i was in that debate of uh dr cockford and um dr tangway um and i like after i see how the evidence just um basically i think he i think dr tangway's paper is better like scientifically speaking, like I, I'm not, I, I don't really care about like the whole, I'm not so much into like ethics or I'm, I really care about what the evidence present and I have to look at it that way. Um, it's never like a moral issue to me. It's more so about does it work or not? And um I think if we, like Dr. Tengui said, there needs to be enough beds for people who are, who want to recover, but also we don't criminalize people who, who are supposed to have a treatment and we, and we give them treatment that is actual treatment, not just, um, not just locking them up, That's which is, I think and, what, right, yeah. what people who are, um, basically the main concern 
of people who are against mandated treatment is basically we just care about how they are treated in that yeah. in that um, treatment facility. That's all we care about, right? We just want basically we just want people to be oh. taken care of oh, like a human, like like shoot. just like everybody else. So okay. um, we'll just act like it's not happening; it'll catch up. Okay, yeah. here we are. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. We lost so, you for a second there, but but it'll come through in the final recording. So yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, like in terms of like schizophrenia or any other mental disorder, I really like working so hard to give them autonomy before, before that we say, okay, well, you clearly can't function. Like you, you clearly is a harm to yourself, you know, but, um, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, with I that think debate, my personal I really experience saw, yeah is that I don't feel like my, like myself or my colleagues abuse, you know, certification. Um, I think that we try everything we can, you know, for example, like when I'm doing community treatment orders, I can know that I do not need this person's consent to put them on a community treatment order because of their history. But if they will consent, I have them sign the consent. Even though I could say I'm doing this as a no consent treatment order, I yeah. want them to be an active participant in their wellness. I, I, I would feel, like to think that that's a most. I I do not feel like as like I think the majority of my colleagues err on the side of trying to give people as much autonomy as they can, sometimes to a fault. You know, like I, I really personally have not witnessed abuse of these sorts of things, but I don't get why we don't recognize that if we can do it for other mental disorders, that we can also do it appropriately in substance use disorder. Of course. Like we continue to treat it like it's some sort of a special illness. Um, and it, it's not, it's an illness. The schizophrenia is an illness. Diabetes is an illness. They're illnesses. Um, and yeah, so just this, you know, well, we do it in all the other things under the DSM, but we're, we, we can't apply it in substance use disorder, despite the fact that as we're talking about, they meet criteria. Right. right. I think uh, it, it, um, it, it, it has something to do with um, how mandated treatment was done in the past or done in the past which is basically also tied in into being criminalized, like addiction being criminalized. And so there's this, you know, it's like a pendulum that people, um, at least in my community, thinking that, oh, are you criminalizing this? You know, and there's that fear because we used to criminalize drug users and there are criminalization in other parts of the world about people with um uh, substance use disorder. So um, I don't think it's n not necessarily that uh, people think, okay, schizophrenia and substance use disorder are different, uh, but it's more so about one is criminalized and the other isn't. Um, schizophrenia is I mm -hmm. totally agree with you. The one thing I would say is that I agree with what you're saying if you're looking at it from the perspective of a user. But my question is, from the perspective of a physician, 
Mm -hmm. Why do we feel that we don't have the ability to utilize our mental health act to help people with substance use disorder in the same way that we utilize the mental health act to help people with other mental illnesses? Well, I think we know the answer. I, to that, I think, right? I think, know. I think I agree with that. Stigma. Um, stigma. It's 100% stigma. That's right. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. historically yeah. we've used jails. That, that's what yes. they're supposed we to use go. Jails. Yeah, you know. it's, it's not, they're not supposed to go there, right? And like no. people in bipolar and other, in other parts of the world or schizophrenia, they don't, they're not criminalized, but then they are criminalized mm. for substance use disorder. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. there's that yeah. common, and, and I think, you know, I think the harm reduction trauma. community has valid concerns as, as mm -hmm. when you first came on the show, Attica, you were, you know, your concerns are valid. Right yeah. about about oh. dehumanizing people and, and taking away their rights and their autonomy and all those things, right? Because of our past, right? Like yeah. it, it, of course, of course, there's valid concerns about that. So, um, overcoming yeah, to, the, to, that history, right? Go ahead. You know, the, yeah. the the three things people usually say about involuntary treatment is it's ineffective, you know, uh, it's unethical and a violation of rights. And the truth of the matter is, if you do it wrong, it will be all of those things. And I have to say, traditionally, done wrong. Yeah. Almost yeah. across mm -hmm. the board. I think okay? so. So I 100% understand where people are coming from um, and what yes. the concerns are. And let's get real. In some countries, you know, you're caught with drugs. Whether you have a substance use disorder or not, you're in forced oh, yeah. labor and they're calling it treatment. So, like, that's the history yeah. of it. But what, what I would no, say. in my country, like, yeah. you can get killed. You can get yeah. killed for possession. That's and that's where man. people are really fighting against anything mandatory. Right. Because they, mm -hmm. because there's that collective trauma of, oh, no, are you treating this like, like, like a moral failure? It's not, right? Like, it's, it's a disease. Yeah. It's a healthcare yeah. issue. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, See, I think it's, I think that history. Yeah, it's, um, like it's to me, it's kind of okay. I could tell you, like families in Ontario have been advocating for more involuntary for involuntary treatment to apply to addiction. But even the the families who whose loved ones have other uh, mental health conditions that usually we do apply, you know, our mental health act to, there aren't enough beds. So they're they've been advocating for this forever. Sadly, why are we talking about this today? Oh, because the politicians are all of a sudden talking about it. Well, why are they all of a sudden talking about it? It's because of the opioid epidemic. That's it. And yeah. so no one cares about the, frankly, more people dying from alcohol use disorder. We don't even talk about it. And so I think the main point needs to be, and, and you know, you kind of need to be of a certain age and, and involved in this for a long time to know this, but Involuntary treatment is not about drug policy reform. You, you can believe in drug policy reform and believe in involuntary treatment. It, it's, it's a question of an individual's capacity to make treatment decisions and whether they're at serious risk of harm to themselves or others due to an untreated addiction or other mental health condition and they aren't seeking treatment. And so, you know, to the people who oppose it, like a, there are people who it's, it's like an ideology and it's just like, no, never, no way, no how. My question to them is, and they can never answer it. Well, what is your better solution when someone lacks, lacks capacity to make treatment decisions? Or what is your better solution 
when they're at serious risk of harm to themselves or others due to untreated addiction and they're not seeking help. And like, don't answer that with harm reduction because I agree with harm reduction. But the thing is, like treat, treatment doesn't work if you aren't seeking it. Sadly, there are many people who are either unwilling or unable to practice harm reduction. No one ever says that. It is the truth. <laughs> you, you have people who are not calling NORS, right? They're using a loan in their homes and they're not calling NORS and they're dead. So harm reduction is good. We need more harm reduction. And that is not going to save everyone. And don't tell me it is like, you know, like, so that you could be well, safer supply. Okay. But people are dying from alcohol. So, you know, uh, it, it's the just, other thing, it's Angie, like everything. Is, we need everything. And the other thing is that from an ethical perspective, right? People play the ethics card, but it's like, as society, is it ethical to stand by and allow somebody who has mental retardation to walk down the middle of a highway and get hit by a car and get killed? Is it ethical as a society to allow a three-year-old to wander the streets and, and freeze to death in a snowbank? No, and so we don't do those things as society. So it's like, it's easy to say, well, it's unethical to force treatment. But my question is, is it ethical to stand by and do nothing when we Dang. know that these people have frontal lobes that are turned off? How is that ethical? Like, look right. at yourself, like, you know? We need to question yeah. the ethics of, it's, it's way past time to question the ethics of not intervening, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. what, what are you saying there? So you, you agree? We've got the coroner agreeing everybody's at serious risk of harm. Uh, and, uh, and some of them are struggling with addiction and not seeking help. Like, they know 75% aren't seeking help. So, so then what? Like, you know, regulation, safer supply, decrim, we need to do a lot of that. Um, I'm hesitating with the safer supply versus regulation because I like regulation better than safer supply, but that's a long story. Um, that's another we, podcast we need, episode. Right? Yeah, that's another that's podcast. We need, we need drug policy reform and we need mm -hmm. protective health laws. We need both. And it comes down to what is the, what's in the best interest of that individual? Like, you know, can, can they look after yeah, themselves? And so, and which tool are we right. going to pull out of the box to, to make yeah, sure that and, their best interest is being met? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the whole, you know, human rights. Well, to me, they have a right to life and security of the person. Their security yeah. of the person is affected when they can't stop using. It's killing them and they don't want to die. Because just switch to alcohol so we don't have the, issue of regulation being the problem. Alcohol, it's regulated, it's not the problem. So they're drinking, you know, to death and they can't stop and, and they don't, they don't want help or, or they, you know, it, yeah, they just, they, they don't want help. They're drinking themselves to death. Um, I'm more interested in their right to life and security of the person than their right to refuse treatment because their autonomy, which is their autonomy, because their autonomy is compromised by their illness. Like, Oh, you can't coerce them. Their brain is coercing them. Their brain is off kilter. It's telling them you need it. And it, to be fair, if they don't have some alcohol, they're going to have seizures and stuff. So again, but that's not the solution long term to, you know, so rights have to be balanced even within the individual. And if their right to autonomy is going to kill them and they don't want to die, you know, I would prefer their right to life and security of the person. Mm. 
fair. Well said. Well said. I can't help but think, as I'm sitting here listening to you, um, the perspective, like the, the lenses that that we're seeing all of this from, sitting with this panel of the, of the four of us. Um, specifically, though, I can see Lisa and Angie, the two of you, a lawyer and a doctor, and a retired lawyer. I know, I'm sorry, right? but together, what you could do in the world. Right, like this is I. I'm just like, oh my god! <laughs> the two of you could get, you could just, you could kick so much ass together. I just want to say that. <laughs> so sorry. Well, thank you, but sadly, the only thing that makes our politicians move is embarrassing yeah. them in, in the media, and, well and I don't well like said. doing yeah. that. Like I, that's, that's isn't not there part of that like MO, a little bit, but... a little bit? Do you, hmm? Don't you like it? You got to like it just a little bit. I mean, embarrassing a politician is always okay, a good thing. You know thing, what? Right? If they you know? did something about it, but <laughs> yeah, but yeah. um, but they don't. No, that's fair. Like that's they fair. still, they still. I don't know. Maybe we're not big enough. Maybe that's it. You know. Yeah. I don't well, know. But yeah, but uh, yeah. but ultimately, it's the people who don't like stepping over our people and who you know and whose businesses are being affected and who don't want their children to have to witness all this stuff on the street. They're the ones that are going to um, result in, in the politicians addressing concerns family caregivers have been telling them about to deaf ears for over a decade. The muggles. Like, the muggles are the ones that change it, right? Yeah. I've been saying yeah. that for, since, since day one. You know, the, the Harry but Potter I reference do I believe right? <laughs> he calls people <laughs> like you and I muggles. Yes. Um, but, actually, but I call I, Lisa the mugglest of the muggles, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I like Harry Potter, so I'm okay with it. I believe that families demanding more and being louder can make a difference. 100%. And I think, and I think it's one of the reasons why I think something like FAR is powerful because I see it on an individual basis. It's like, you know what? Do another form eight, do another form eight, do another form eight. At some point, they're gonna be like, for God's sakes, okay. <laughs> this family's driving us crazy. Yeah. And, you know, and the sad thing though, is the amount of energy and time that it takes to do that, you know, for a family who's already suffering and feeling helpless and feeling under supported. But, I feel like, yeah, there aren't enough beds. You know, it's something that Rob talked about on the show. It's like, yeah, okay, we can talk about do we or do we not mandate treatment. But the other thing is, if we mandate treatment, what are we going to do? Because like, where are we going to put these people, you know? But again, it's like, show up, demand, fight, be loud. Because I do think it can make a difference. Oh, for sure. It's the squeaky wheel. If you if you don't squeak, no, no one. And But the problem is... Uh, Families do an awful lot of squeaking and they still aren't, aren't seen and heard, you know, um, mm -hmm. that, that doesn't mean you stop. You absolutely have to. But like the, the waste in that, like waste. It, somebody described it to me when I was just starting out as it's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen like the ocean where there's lots of fish and somebody throws in like a little piece of bread and then the, the water just roils, you know, it's just roiling mm -hmm. all with all them fighting for that. That's, you know, people who are trying to serve our loved ones and the resources available and the federal funding, right? There's like a yeah. drop in the bucket 
and so much time is spent elbowing other people out of the, and you know, like, this is how I view it. Like, it's like, so if I squeak for, for my son to get treatment and that person over there doesn't, I still, I like, great, my son gets treatment. I've elbowed, but who did I just elbow out of the way? Some other family that really needs treatment. Like, but we if, but all if everybody need, starts elbowing, right? And, and we need to all get energy. together yes. and yeah. tell the politicians that that we need we need treatment on demand and the human resources to do that and it needs to be urgent and like part of the problem is like the whole setup for the the how we educate physicians because you know on one hand i understand you got a dermatologist should they really know how to treat opioid use disorder and you can't make them on the other hand as a profession, like what's really kind of happened is as a profession, historically, they've never treated addiction. They sent you to AA or you went to jail. They just didn't deal with you. It wasn't their job. And a lot of them still don't see it as their job and they're not comfortable because they don't get the education. And there doesn't seem to be any way to force physicians to learn how to treat opioid use disorder in primary care. And to me, that really needs to be done. And, at, and in this debate or the other, session um crockford was talking about how the feds i didn't know this apparently they've mandated you know wait like wait lists for hip um replacements can't be longer than whatever i don't know if they've tied the provincial funding into that but wow like why aren't we demanding they do the same thing with residential treatment for those who need it for addiction and and to ensure that people you know, who want, o, uh, you know, uh, OAT can get it no matter where they live, right? Like that's, you know, we're, we're screaming for safer supply and people who want the approved treatments can't get it. Like it's, it's just so backwards. It's backwards. Mm -hmm. and, and physicians are a part of the problem because not addiction medicine doctors, but the, the, the general one, because they, they haven't, the education, we can't make them do it. And like, I don't know, it's like, somehow we need to make them do it or incentivize them so they want to do it. I mean, obviously, that's better. Um, but it's, it's is, is how it, do you do is that? Is the reality now response? the next generation? Is, is the reality now the next generation <sighs> of physicians? Is it Lisa? What do you think of that? Yeah. Is it, is it just the reality? Is that where we're at with it? And, and, you know. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I always think back to this one physician that I worked with, um, in part because I feel like, you know, it's a bit of a stereotype. But this was when I was, um, I was in my last year of med school and I was on a labor and delivery unit. And um, I was working with this uh, obstetrician who was probably, you know, he was a, Caucasian man in his mid-60s, probably, and a woman had come in um, with active opiate use disorder in, in preterm labor, and there was so much stigma, and of course, he had no idea what my interests were, and we, we were chatting, and I mean, the one thing I will say was he was actually very open 
to me talking to him about some of this. And I said, oh, actually, you know, like I have an interest in addiction medicine. And, and I started talking to him about, you know, functional MRI imaging of this woman's brain and what was going on in her frontal lobe and how that was impairing her ability to act in a way that would be in keeping with a natural instinct of a mother to want to protect her child and love her child and make good decisions for her child. And I saw him shift literally in 10 minutes in terms of how he looked at and spoke about this woman. So, I mean, I think that, you know, education around the science of addiction is powerful. Um, and I think physicians obviously are scientifically driven individuals. And I think this information can impact any physician if they're provided it. But again, it's the question of how do 60-year-old obstetricians learn about the science of addiction when they're not sitting in a medical school classroom anymore? How do you get that information to those individuals? So I think it's easier to change the next generation of physicians perspective because you can make sure this is incorporated into their medical training that every physician goes through. Um, I think it's simply harder to reach people who are already well into practice in specialties that are not, you know, going to see addiction on a regular basis. Okay. That, that's, that's a fair answer. Most certainly. Right. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I just, mm. you know, just like with what we were talking about, like, there's still this part of me, and I mean, I work in a hospital and I, you know, I know what it feels like when the eMERGE is backed up and busy and you feel like you're drowning. But there's still this part of me that's like if every family member lined up at the courthouse and said, you know what, I've read through this criteria. I think my loved one in addiction satisfies certification criteria and I want to form eight. Imagine what, what, what it would look like for a judge showing up to a courthouse in the morning with a line that, that goes 10 blocks down the road saying, we want a form, we want treatment. Can you send like, me that link, please, What's the power Lisa? of that? The link yeah, on yeah, what's, yeah. what it, please, yeah. I, you just gave me you a, know what I mean? like, you just inspired something that, like. <laughs> it will overwhelm <laughs> yeah. the legal system. Uh, it will overwhelm, like, you know, if every, because for example, I meet plenty of people suffering in addiction who want help, who don't know where to go. True. They don't me have too. family. Me too. But they don't, they don't believe that showing up at the hospital is the answer. But what if everybody in addiction who wanted help, because a lot of them want it and don't know how to get it or don't believe it's yes, available to them. True. What if every one of them showed up at a hospital and said, I have <laughs> substance use disorder. I want help. I'm not leaving until someone helps me. What if every family member lined up outside of every courthouse in this country and demanded certification for their loved one? Do you know, like, I know I'm being extremist. I get that. But I'm just saying, like, but that's for I, me a powerful extreme thing. situation. Like, we are in an extreme situation right now. People are dying all day, every yeah. day, right? The numbers are awful. They're staggering. Four times the amount of people mm -hmm. died from opiate disorder. Or so from, the, the from problem is drug that poisoning. there is there is decriminalization without regulation, which is that's why there is poisoning everywhere. Like I, mm -hmm. I don't even like the term overdose. It's not even an overdose. Like it's poisoning. And literally, people get poisoning. They don't know if their batch is is clean or not. And most of the time, it's not. Over 99% of the time, it's not. And the current technology is not even good enough to detect 
everything 5% or under 5% of concentration, which is basically enough to kill someone. And I do see people wanting to get help, but they have to wait wait for months to get help. Like that's crazy. That's that's crazy. That's that's. But again, it's like that question and that question though of if everybody started showing up and and demanding, you know, I don't know, maybe demanding is the wrong word, but if everybody was showing up and saying, I want help, I want help, it's like that will get attention. You know, it's like, how do we get politicians to pay attention? How do we get policies changed, laws changed? It's like, you know, I just, I just have this, this dream (laughs) of, you know, every emergency department with a line of people with substance use disorder saying, this is not okay. I deserve help. (laughs) Every family member lined up outside of their courthouses saying, this is not okay. We want help for our loved ones. It's just like, how powerful would that be? You know, I mean, it's a pipe well, dream, but, um, but, but is it, but is it, I, I mean, to that extreme, maybe, but if we put a form out and I'm, I've every intention on it, a document that I'll put together, co- coaching people on where to go, what to say, you know, what they, what they need to do for their loved ones and, and watch what happens, right? Watch what happens if people have so, this tool in front of them and start showing up at courthouses regularly. I mean, Basically, yeah, it's helped, on. It's a public you website, to, you know, to help these people. Yeah, but, but again, we just don't know. Yeah. Family members don't know. There's right. No. Most recently, the, the situation with Heather right now, right? You yeah. telling me, telling telling them, here here's what you can do, right? Like there wasn't anything I don't inappropriate about what she's, you know. There's you're very you're very very careful to make sure that you didn't, you know, cross any, cross any lines in, in your role as a physician. But now that they have gone to the courts, they have, they have, mm. they have the form one, form eight. What is it that they, that they have to get? So form um, eight is something that's issued by a judge. If a judge agrees yes. with your argument that's, that that's your loved have. one have the, is at they risk have the form of harm. Eight now, right? you know? So they have the form eight. So now it's about finding Heather and, and who knows how that goes. Right. But if every family has that information in front of them, a lot yeah. more of them are going to do it, right? Because that's yeah. all they needed was the information. They've been fighting this fight for years, and they didn't know until three days ago that this is something they could do, right? Yeah. So, well, yeah. the, the people who have known it's something they can do, um, traditionally, historically, they do it and they don't get anywhere. I mean, that, that yeah. is the history of it, right? And, like, even totally. if you get... Even if you get, so in Ontario, you can get a form two, which allows the police to bring your loved one to a hospital to be assessed. And then they need a form one and a form three. Um, Even if you get them there, Mm -hmm. you have a very slim chance that they're going to hang on to your loved one, especially, frankly. I would suggest, so go do it again. The next time, do it again. Do it again. Right. Yeah. We, right. we are telling, we, we do tell um, people to not give up and that kind of thing. But the judiciary is similarly, uh, sadly, uneducated. And so, yeah. like, we we had a family member and, and they had a youth, um, you know, and, and, and they were told, um, we've had a couple of them actually, and, and they told just stuff that's dead wrong. Like, well, oh, the, the, the justice of the peace in tears. Oh, I, I, you know, I so want to do this for you. But sadly, 
substance use disorder isn't a mental disorder and the mental health act doesn't apply. And See, so it, now if that family member is armed with the, with the definition of, right. And, and says, yes. and, 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 and here's the other thing, Angie, something that I've had two people now say, well, one person say one person ready to say, you know, we have this podcast. It's quite powerful or it's quite popular. It's growing in popularity. You're going to be the star if this goes wrong, right? You right now, are going to be the star of it when things go wrong. We're going to hold your feet to the fire over this. And if we keep doing that, and we keep doing that, and the individuals at the front line have to, because that's the only way to change it, right? If the person, if, the, if that judge or that doctor is afraid to be outed as the, as the person that led to this, this person's child's death, then maybe, right? And, and maybe, maybe it is a pipe dream. Maybe I'm in Lisa's camp here and, and I'm dreaming, but, you know. I'm just, um, you know. My problem with it is there are no beds. Like it was what David Crawford said, you know, in, in his discussions is he said two things. One didn't surprise me. And the other one, I just like, it surprised me that he just said it like that. Cause I'm like, I think that should be illegal. But so the, the first thing was like, we don't have the bed. We don't have the beds for the people with psychiatric disorders who don't have addiction. We don't have the beds for them. So we can't deal with addiction on top of it. And then he said, we don't treat addiction in the psych ward. And later he said, we need to treat everything at the same time. Ah, so we're, we've got beds and we're using them and we're not providing evidence-based treatment because we're ignoring the addiction if they have it, or we're, you know, we're dismissing them before they get there. Like, so Lisa, if like, it's, it's a big deal. It is a big deal to, to go through this procedure, like to, to try to get your loved one for and generally they don't go, oh, wow, mom, dad, thanks. I love you so much. I, I see this. I see, you know, it's like <laughs> you, you know, and so we, we tell them like, yeah. like, you know, it's important. Like we tell them this could affect your relationship with your loved one. But more often than not, the answer is my relationship is terrible right now and they're going to die. So I would rather they never talk to me again and have a chance at getting well mm -hmm. than not do anything because it might make our bad relationship a little bit worse. Right? So those are the people that need to do it. But when there's no beds, it, like, it's like, but here's the thing too, though, from my perspective, Angie, is that if we continue to not push and, and show that, look at all these people who need beds, they're never gonna create more beds. What a and so I'm like, I don't care, line them down the street, line, but line yeah. them down the street, make it clear we need more beds. It's like, for example, like one of the things that sometimes I am on the receiving end of, you know, is messages in hospital about the number of admitted patients in the emergency departments awaiting for psychiatric right. beds. And so please hurry up and discharge, please hurry up and discharge. And what I think to myself every time I get that message is you're barking on the wrong end of this tree. If I could discharge my patients, I would discharge them, not because of this text message. I would discharge them because they're ready to go. Mm -hmm. They're here clearly because they need to be here. So if there are 40 people who need psychiatric beds right now, then go up the ladder, not down. Go yeah. up the ladder and demand more beds. Find a way to get more beds. And I just feel like if we 
said, no, we're not going to accept that we're not going to help sick people because there's no beds, find more bloody beds, then I believe it can happen. But if we just say, well, it's no point, don't go to the hospital, don't get the Form 8 because there's no beds anyway, they're never going to be more beds. Right. Yeah. I'm a dreamer. I'm a dreamer. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You, you know what I mean? Though. I do. But yeah. I totally know what you mean. I just wish that it, it's, it seems so inefficient, though. It's, that's what my problem. But I <laughs> like I 100 percent agree. Whatever we're doing right now is not getting the attention. But I have to tell and you then, also, if it, part of it is. Our community is divided on involuntary treatment. You've got very loud people saying mm -hmm. this is a violation of rates, unethical, always wrong, and doesn't work. Okay? Mm -hmm. Politicians run for the hills with their tail tucked between their legs when they see division in the community. Okay? You couldn't do anything worse, right? Same with safer mm -hmm. supply. Like, you know, is it, is it helpful or is it killing people? Or is it saving people or killing? Like, there is, the community is right now divided on that. Mm -hmm. And so the politicians generally just kind of go, oh, nothing in this for us. Like, you know, run for the hills. Like, let's just ignore this for another 10 years. So it would, it behooves us. Yeah. To get at tables with each other and agree mm -hmm. that when people use substances, they're better off to use a regulated substance. Some people lack the ability to look after themselves and make treatment decisions and, and, there is a role for involuntary treatment. The question is mm -hmm. who, when, and how. Not if. Mm -hmm. Who, when, and how. Let's work together on that. Because they don't want their love. Nobody wants our people, I don't think, to end up in jail, homeless, or dead. You know, that, 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 that's not the goal. And, and people generally do care about safety of community. It's not irrelevant. Safety of family not irrelevant those are it's not just about the person with substance use disorder and if you come from basic principles and you get around the table you need really great facilitators but i think that would be the best thing it's happening a little the, the bit challenge is, like is that if i can the, the challenge is that getting people at that table together is so hard because of this belief that if you don't show you care the exact same way I show uh -huh. I care, then you don't care, right? And how many great conversations, this one included, don't happen as soon as people start thinking that way, uh -huh. right? And it, it's a point I've made multiple times now, and it's, it's, that's just the way it is, right? It, it, if, if you, you know, the other, the other a, thing that I feel like is known, it's been, the studies have been done in numerous countries, numerous times, uh, that like the dollars yeah. spent on treating addiction saves anywhere from six to 10 from studies that I've read. Mm -hmm. To me, as society, that is powerful because we can say we don't have beds. But when you look at those studies, it's like, but wait a minute, it's actually way more economical and efficient for us to create more beds, build more facilities, treat more people because it saves our economy for every dollar between six to $10. Yeah. Like, why is that? Why are those studies out there? And no one seems to talk about them and, and use that as a driving force to create they, more facilities and more beds. They Four do. Political the, cycles, the, election cycles, that's why. Yeah. The, the, sorry, what did you say? Chuck? I said four-year election cycles. Yes, exactly. Like, nobody gives a shit yeah. past their next term. 
that's why it's right. I, the, there's this pendulum that i find about um either we sway into one side r really to the extreme and then the other end and another yep. extreme so yeah, i've been in like exactly. fighting for free naloxone for everyone for samaritans and it took me five years to push that mm -hmm three to five years. And it was like, it's so simple. It's the, the idea that you can just use an naloxone on someone when you need to save them. But it's just take years because the political willingness of even taking care of people with substance use disorder is so low. The political willingness mm -hmm. is almost yeah. absent. So it's just taking... That, right? that work again and again just being so persistent um yeah. i find ladies we could do this for another three hours <laughs> and i just looked at the time and went oh my lord uh, it's quarter <laughs> to two in the morning here and i still have to edit publish and release this episode <laughs> it's gonna be a long oh and you know where i'm going you guys are gonna love this angie you don't you won't get the reference but we're going on an excursion tomorrow as we do once a week here to Banana Beach or Banana Island, sorry. <laughs> oh my <Yay>. god! <laughs> so, Angie, I'll Banana. give you just just to lighten things up on our on our way out of the yeah. show here, the episode. So, when I first got here, I was talking to both Attica and Lisa about how the bananas here are so much better. They're like dessert, right, compared to back home because they're they're sweet. And Attica said the bananas at home are sad bananas, and the bananas here are happy bananas. So every day. I walk around this giant property with all of its statues and I place bananas on the statues in different ways. Aww. And I send a message to our little happy bananas group chat. Aww. Right. So you can imagine how happy I was to find out that tomorrow we're going to Banana Island. Island. Right? <laughs> oh yeah. I'm going to buy all the bananas from all the people. And I, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I don't, I don't even know. It's going to be great though. Yeah, so. They cheer me up. Oh, I, I get those, I get those messages and those pictures with the statues and the bananas. I've yeah, even shared them the with colleagues at work. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> right. I'll have to look for them. Oh, I'll yeah. add you to the happy bananas. No, no, no. It's yeah. not on Facebook. This is our, this is our happy banana chat. So oh, we have a happy you, banana if you've got chat. messenger, if you've got, if, go ahead, Lisa, and add her to the chat. If okay, like, there we go. Yeah. You on All right. Sounds right? good. Yeah. You, you can Sounds be in good. on the, yeah. on our little secret banana chat. Yeah. Right. So yeah, some of like, them are a little suggestive. I'm just saying. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, yesterday or today, I don't know. It's a weird time zone thing. I had grapes here for the first time. Local grapes. <gasps> They're better than the bananas. <laughs> They're so <laughs> sweet. Well, I don't yeah. know about better than that's a that's a bold statement, but they're but so sweet. Really they're just yeah, amazing. They're the just tiny. Fruits, yeah. yeah. Oh, so much better. It's amazing. I had an avocado smoothie yesterday. Mm. Oh yeah, the avocado, av avocado and honey better. and honey and, yeah. and wild honey to boot, right? Oh yeah, yeah. amazing. And the um, what is it called? Yeah. Like uh, the papayas are much better. Oh, it's funny because piece, there's like, there's papayas and mangoes at every better. meal here, right? I just love that. Yeah. Shit. I'm getting yeah. hungry. Yeah. Oh, I miss that. I know. <laughs> I'm going to go raid the fridge for yeah, some papayas exactly. and bananas. That's what I'm going to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy bananas. Um, which, hey, that brings us to my favorite part of the show, and that is the daily gratitudes. Today's daily gratitudes are brought to you by something a little bit different. Uh, one of the things I am so grateful for is the help and support that I have received uh, through the GoFundMe page in order to get here to Thailand and to uh, begin my new journey here. Um, for those of you that aren't aware, I came to Thailand to take advantage of a scholarship that was offered here at the Yacha Treatment Center uh, to address some of the traumas that um, even now after a year being in sobriety, 
which is just not that long. Um, and, and, you know, building the platform and, and trying to help people as much as I have and living, breathing recovery for this last year as, as we build the, plat- you know, the, the podcast grows and, and our audience grows and we're trying to help people. Um, some of the big T trauma stuff that I faced in my last couple of years of active addiction, it's actually quite debilitating. Further than that, um, I, I don't even know what kind of stuff I want to start addressing after I've journey moves on here at through Yacha Center. The thing is, is I'm not coming home. I'm not going back to Canada. I'm here to stay. Right? I'm here to stay because it's a, it's a sustainable way to, to keep doing the podcast. Um, at the end of the day, in Canada, I was making much less money than, uh, than social services would have paid me had I chose to go that route. And that said, out of that money, I still had to cover my expenses for the podcast, etc., etc. So, um, I, I was living a very, um, very hard life that way financially. So it, it just made sense to stay here in, in, in Thailand where the cost of living is so much cheaper. Just before I left, uh, one of my sponsors has had to pull out. I, I won't say the name of it, um, but they, they've just, they're broke. Right? The landscape in Canada has meant that, uh, that there's a lot more competition because people are taking advantage and, well, I don't want to get into it. But anyway, uh, my sponsor's broke. I'm continuing to advertise for that person, for that sponsor. Um, because they helped me out in a time when uh, I, they didn't need to help me, they didn't need the, the extra business. Well, now they do, and so uh, I'd be remiss if I could try and drive some, some business to their, their facility. But that said, I find myself on the other side of the world trying to figure out how I'm going to make it. Um, I'm a little nervous at the same time. I know things will just fall into place if I keep you know, doing the right thing, making good choices, living a good life, helping people. Um, I, have, I have found that life has a way of coming full circle and that I'm going to be okay. However, um, I do have to ask, you know, the GoFundMe page is still going. I never even came close to my goal before I left. So if you can find it in your hearts to give a little bit, I so much appreciate that. Uh, $10, $25, $100 have changed my life here because it goes so very far. And remember, um, I'm here to continue the work that we're doing, to continue spreading that message, that you are loved message, that message of inclusion, message of hope. And I can't imagine myself doing anything else. That's why I just moved halfway around the world with everybody I know and everything I know, because it's just too important to me. So um, if you can't help out sharing the GoFundMe, it's on the Facebook page, of course, um, means a lot to me as well, you know, to, to help get that word out. So anything you can do would be much appreciated. And uh, that's enough for me rambling on. Uh, let's get into our daily gratitudes. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Um, we'll start with you today, Attica. What you got for some for some daily gratitudes? I'm thankful that I get to see Angie and Lisa again um, after the season, of course. And I'm thankful to be uh, a co-host in this podcast. So thank you, John. Ah, thank you, Lisa. What you got for us today? Um, I'm gonna yeah say I'm thankful that Angie's here. Um, I'm thankful for the work that she's doing. I'm thankful that she created Far. As you know, at the end of the day, I'm a physician right now, but I this all started as a family member, and yeah, like I'm thankful for the advocacy work that she's doing, the support that she's you know helping provide through this organization. So that's yeah. what I'm grateful for. Great, Angie. What about yourself? I am grateful to be here, that you invited me on, that we had the opportunity. I always love having an opportunity to share my opinions. 
hopefully with people who are listening. So I, I really do appreciate that. It's always a pleasure spending that time uh, with you, Lisa, and Ica, uh, and, and Chuck to really get to know you quite a bit better. And also, um, I am really grateful that my son is still alive because I am so aware um, every day, all the time, that he could be gone in an instant. And um, I would share that experience with so many mothers that I love. Um, and, you know, I, that. that. Well said. Um. Fuck, I almost made it through an episode. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> you had me once already, and then now, shit. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, ah, for myself, um, I mean, Ange, I'm so happy that you came on the show. I can't believe that it's taken this long. It's, uh, But it's, you know, the universe provides, right? So there's a reason it took this long. The show has matured. Um, our audience has grown all those things since we first started talking. So I like to think that that's why right now we're, we're able to get your, your point across that much better to that many more people. And maybe that's why it took this long. Right? So um, I'm, I'm having more and more faith in the universe as it goes. I'm thankful to my situation where I'm at at the auto treatment center here. It is like, it is so cool. Everything about this place is conducive to healing. Um, something really hit me the other day as I'm, you know, my daily vlogs and all that jazz. A year ago, I couldn't get on a bus. 20 days ago, I got on a fucking plane to go halfway around the world, right? And to live and to like, I'm so grateful to so many people, right? <laughs> like so many people, you know? And, and I, I was just thinking about the contrast there. You got a bus with 30 people and a plane with 400 on it. And I, you know, I went through that for 14 hours instead of 20 minutes. And right, <laughs> like, like the extreme difference there, right? To, but Chuck, to you get to, to you know, right, you get you know. to like you're in a place now where you get to savor a banana and find joy right? in a banana. Savor right? a banana, like, yay, right? I love ice baths. Who'd have thought that was going to happen? <laughs> right? I'm kind Not of oh, and, and have you ever tried one? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't get yeah, all the way in. Yeah. Did not even get in. Oh, no. I couldn't do it. Ah, so you, so you didn't try one. You oh, attempted one, but you on. haven't actually tried one. I was in, you one. know. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. I'll tell you Maybe what. Not. I'll tell you what. Excruciating. And, of course, my lifestyle, I've had borderline frostbite a couple times. So, like, my hands and feet turn to fire when I get cold. Oh. Like, it's awful. These ice baths have changed my life. 100%. 100%. They're amazing. It's just like... you're the way you have to center to, to, to survive it, right? Your mind has to be, because right? it's all about getting through the breath, you know? Um, what it just does for your soul, just everything about it. I just, I can't wait for my next one. I don't get one on the weekends. I'm like, well, that's kind of a scam, right? <laughs> so they're, they're awesome. Yeah, I went five minutes the other day um, up from, from a minute. Wow. I think the first one was a minute 40 or something like our minute 15. Oh, right? I have to say, Chuck, yeah. that I, you know, and for Angie and for anybody listening who hasn't seen it, you know, if you go to, I think you have it on the Ashes to Awesome um, Facebook, Facebook page, page. Yep. but he's yep. actually shared videos of his ice baths and he's doing it oh, with yeah. support. And so getting to oh, listen the to support. the support talk that, you know, it's going through, oh. like I actually, yeah. the first one you posted made me cry. You're the second person to say that. Dan Knox said the same thing. Watching you support, do it. Right? Yeah. Which, 
it, which is just a, it's another reminder and for me of all the support it took to get me to a point where I was here. And it, it's just hyper focused support now on that ice bath, right? But it is such a parallel to, you know, to everything that's happened to get me to a point where I'm here. I was homeless a year ago, right? Yeah, I was wow. fucked like 13 months ago, you know, right? It's like straight homeless. And now all of a sudden here I am in Thailand and people are walking me through this ice bath and making me smoothies the way I want them. And, you know, right? And I'm going to live bananas. in some, <laughs> happy fucking bananas, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> You're happier in Thailand. Like, I can see that. Like, oh, um, like Chuck over and here the healing. versus Chuck over um, there. Um, <laughs> um, um, rapid. What's the, the eye movement? EMD. EMDR. EMDR yeah. Holy cow. Right. If for anybody that's listening that has any trauma, um, I, I mean, obviously, I got to say, check out, trauma, you know, Yacha Treatment Center here, yachacenter.com. But um, any way you have to access EMDR is worth a try. I like, I took one of the most powerful traumas, something that has been holding me prisoner in my mind and even home for years. And Mike took that from this, this thing that I, I completely melted down to a thing I could talk about in a matter of fact way, like just melt it down, just writing it down. I was like, ah, oh, here goes. In, in one session, I was able to stop and talk about that in a matter of fact way without emoting about it. And the freedom that came from that was just, it was unreal. Like that is some serious, that is, it's not a gimmick. That's for certain. I mean, it's evidence-based now. I mean, I think that's pretty much accepted, right? Crazy the history behind it, how it came up. But um, between that, um, cognitive behavior therapy, we think we know that's about when people say it. Like me anyway, I'm like, oh, I get it. You don't. There's a whole process there that's really worth looking at, like seriously worth looking at um, and, and how you react and, and deal with all sorts of things in your life, right? I find myself already four days after my first treatment, every time I find myself getting upset at something or somebody running this through my mind, I'm halfway into my stay and my life is forever better for dealing with these traumas. Right. And so like it, the shit that we do to ourselves based on, you know, past experiences is messed up. And, you know, this is this is quite the opportunity to be here. So um, that said, people that are listening, the GoFundMe is still active. I'm going to be on my own in two weeks. I'm fucking terrified. Right? So, any help is much appreciated. Right? Um, anyway, uh, I kind of got off in a rant. This is supposed to be daily gratitudes. Well, that's all about gratitudes. I guess that was right. Um, I am thankful for bougie water bottles <laughs> as always and uh to each and every person that is watching listening and supporting guys uh please keep like commenting sharing hit the buttons down there to do those things um on whatever platform um, we're all over the place now um, every time you do any one of these things you're getting me a little bit closer to continuing to live my best life my best life is to make a humble living spreading the message the message is this if you're in active addiction right now today could be the day Today could be the day that you start a lifelong journey. Reach out to a friend, reach out to a family member, call into detox, go to a meeting. I don't care. Whatever it is you got to do to get that journey started, this is so much better than the alternative. And if you have a loved one who's suffering an addiction right now, just taking the time to listen to the weekend ramble. You just take one more minute out of your day and text that person, let them know they are loved. Use the words. You are loved. Are loved. That little glimmer of hope just might be the thing that brings them back.